You're listening to a podcast from Burley Heads Church of Christ, from Burley Heads on the Gold Coast. I had uh, no idea how many people would be here today. I thought if six people turned up in the first Sunday in January, that would be good. Um, So congratulations to everybody who's made the effort to be here. It looks packed to me. I think that's great. Um, We are, as as Steve mentioned, we're beginning in just in January uh, a series on spiritual habits. And uh, today I'm talking about studying the Bible. Now I know a lot of you already study the Bible really hard. So if I'm telling you stuff you already know, please bear with me. Uh, I'm trying to cover everybody's needs in this talk. Studying the Bible is something that should be second nature to us. And in one sense, all we need to study the Bible is a Bible and the Holy Spirit. But human beings have created lots of things that can help with our studies of the Bible. And so I'll be going through looking at some of the tools uh, that um, we use in studying the Bible. How do I advance the slides? Just wave to you or something or is there a button to push or wave can we have the next slide please okay why should we even bother to study the bible jesus said man shall and i possibly should have got a gender neutral biro a bible but jesus said man shall not live by bread alone but by every word that comes from the mouth of god Man does not live by bread alone. In other words, physical nourishment is not enough. What we need is spiritual nourishment. We need every word that comes from the mouth of God. Friends, if you are not taking in the word of God, you are starving your spirits. We are Christ's disciples. A disciple is somebody who is learning. Have you learned anything spiritual in the last week? If not, your spirit is in starvation mode, barely existing on a single feed from Sunday to Sunday. We all have Bibles, but many of them remain closed. And a Bible that is not read is of no benefit at all. George Foreman was the heavyweight champion of the world, twice. He had 81 fights for 76 wins and five losses. One of those losses was to Muhammad Ali in the famous Rumble in the Jungle. George Foreman wrote a biography called God in My Corner and this is what he said about that fight. In 1974, before I went to Africa to fight Muhammad Ali, a friend gave me a Bible to take along on my trip. He said, George, keep this with you for good luck. I was always looking for luck, so I carried that Bible with me. I had lucky pennies and good luck charms, so now I added the lucky Bible to my collection of superstitious items. After I lost the fight, I threw the Bible away. I never even opened it. I thought, the Bible didn't help me win, so why do I need it? I thought I'd get power simply from owning it. I didn't realise that I needed to read it 
and believe what it says. George wrote, Since then, I've come to understand that the Bible is my road map, not my good luck charm. George's life, George, George um, Foreman's life, changed completely when he started reading the Bible and applying what he learnt to his life. Today, he is in Christian ministry because he read the Bible. He lost a fight because he didn't read it, but now he's in a better fight, fighting for Jesus in Christian ministry. Wouldn't we all like to see improvements in our life, no matter what our age or our social circumstances? The Bible can lead us to a closer relationship with God. And it doesn't matter what else is going on in our life. If we have a closer relationship with God, our lives will be better. So next slide, please. So there are a number of tools that you can use to help to study a Bible text. Now, as I said, you really only need the Holy Spirit and a Bible. But we've come, human beings have invented all sorts of wonderful things that help. But there's a caveat. They're invented by human beings. They're fallible. They're not the same value as the Bible. They're not the inspired word of God. But they can, nevertheless, be very helpful. There are commentaries, study Bibles, cross-references, concordances, internet sites, you name it. There's all over the place. I'm going to very briefly go through these things just to give you an idea. I'm, I'm sure that many of you know about this anyway. But we'll just go through for the sake of everybody being on the same playing field. So a commentary, a good commentary is a book written by somebody who understands the language it was written in, understands the, the social context of the book, understands how that book is used by other authors, authors in the Bible. He's really studied every single word in that book and he's written a book. And, you know, you get books on tiny letters of Paul that are only a few pages long and books that are hundreds and hundreds of pages about those few tiny pages. And in all of those words, there's often golden nuggets that make us really understand what's going on. But they can also be fallible. They are made by human beings. Human beings make mistakes. They're a guide. They're an adjunct. They're not a replacement for the Bible or the Holy Spirit. Next slide. Study Bibles. You may have one of these. It's got the Bible text in one part and then usually at the bottom they've got little notes about the various texts. It's like having a commentary combined with your Bible. Very helpful, particularly for background information. But just because it's in the Bible, it's not infallible. All right? Only the Bible is infallible. So study Bibles are good uh, because you don't have to go and find another book. It's right there. You just look at the footnote. Cross-references. Now, I don't know how well you can see this, but in many Bibles, down the middle, there's a column of really tiny print. And most of us don't bother reading it because it's too tiny. But each one of those is a cross-reference where that concept of whatever is said in the verse is referred to later on or earlier on somewhere else in the Bible. So cross-references can help us get a bigger picture about what we're reading. A concordance. A concordance is a book that lists every single word in the Bible. Even the thes and the ands and the a's. Pages and pages telling you every time the word the appears in the Bible. But also more significant words and that you can look up and find out where every word occurs in the Bible. Uh, really helpful for finding uh, Bible verses that you vaguely remember but you can't remember the whole verse. 
but you can do the same thing with the internet. And the internet has full of marvellous tools. I've picked five out there, but there are literally hundreds of places you can go on the internet for help. There's a place called Bible Gateway. Um, next slide, thanks. Bible Hub, sorry. Um, Bible Hub, if you look up a Bible verse there, it lists every verse in every single, well, just about every single translation that's ever existed. So you can see how different translators have rendered a particular verse. Next one, Bible Gateway. This gives you the whole text. You can choose the translation that you like. You can see the text. And then it's got commentaries and things on the side where you can go and get more information. Next slide, the Bible Project. Bible Project's one of my favourite uh, video uh, uh, sites. Fantastic animations and videos uh, about books of the Bible, themes in the Bible, words in the Bible. It's every week they're building their resources there. I can't recommend the Bible Project highly enough. Next slide. Uh, the Blue Letter Bible, named uh, because when, it was, uh, when they started it back in the 90s, links to, on the internet were in blue letters. And so... There, this is a, a Bible um, a resource site that has lots of links in blue letters, which is why it's called the Blue Letter Bible. So there, these places are full of commentaries, cross-references, maps, study guides, sermons. It's all there. And uh, the, uh, there's one more is a, an app you get on your phone called the YouVersion Bible app. And uh, I have, millions of people have this all around the world. It's the most popular Bible app. And uh, one of the good things about it is that it allows you to work with other people. So you can have all of your friends reading the same Bible plan throughout the year and you read the Bible, then you make comments and your friends make comments and you can interact that way with people who are not even in the same country as you. So there are just some of the uh, tools that are available to help. Next slide, please. So when you're doing a, sitting down to do a Bible study... And I think it's pretty important that you set aside a particular time each day, get a notepad, get a pencil, get a cup of coffee or tea or whatever is your drink of choice, sit down quietly with the Bible, open it up and, and start looking at the text. Now, in this talk, I'm really focusing not on reading big chunks of the Bible because, and, and there's a confession here, uh, I'll sit down in the morning and I'll read several chapters in the Bible and by the end of the day I've completely forgotten what I've read. It just doesn't stick in. The only way it sticks in is if I only read a little bit, maybe even just a single verse and take 10 or 15 minutes to think about that verse. So, which is what we're going to do in the next 10 minutes, exactly what I would be doing to help me over one particular part. Because I can, I, and I do, every morning I'm following a couple of Bible plans and I'll read chapters in the morning. By the end of the day, oh, I think we're reading Genesis this morning and I know that because it's the start of the year and we start at the beginning of the Bible. Catch me up in March and who knows whether I'll remember where I'm at. But when you're doing a, a, a study, there are three parts to it. There's the observation stage, there's the inter interpretation stage and the application stage. Observation is simply reading the text and identifying the different parts. Interpretation is working out what they're trying to say and application is working out how to apply that, what you've just read, to your life. 
So one of the things that, one of the tools that you, we use in, in studying the Bible is questions. It sounds a bit funny to ask a book questions or to interrogate a text, but essentially that's what we're doing. When we ask things like, who is speaking? What are they saying? Where are they situated? When was this said? Why was it said? Who was it said to? We ask these questions. And, and, and answering these questions or finding the answers to the question helps us to understand what we're reading a lot better. Is it a promise that we're reading? Is it a command? Is it a blessing? Is it a word of encouragement? Is it for me or do I share it with somebody else? How does this help me understand God and his will in my life? These sorts of questions. So you can just read a text. Okay, I've read it and that's it. But if you stop and say... How does this apply in my life? How does this affect me? Am I supposed to change? Am I supposed to do anything? You need to ask the questions in order to draw the maximum benefit out of the text that you're reading. Next slide. Okay, so what I'm going to do is I've picked Mark 1 verse 17, which is, And Jesus said to them, Follow me and I'll make you fishers of men. Mark 1 17. And I'm going to go through this process that I would normally go through, share it with you so that you can see how it's done and, uh, and get an idea of, of how to do this yourself, how to apply these um, tips and techniques so that you can draw the maximum benefit out of your Bible time and out of your reading the Bible time. So, what would normally happen when, you were, when I'm reading the Bible... If I was reading Mark chapter 1, I'd come to this verse, I'd read it, I'd read the next verse and the next verse and the next verse. And because this is only short-term memory, by the time I get to the end of the chapter, I've forgotten what was reading in verse 17. So taking one verse and focusing on that moves it from short-term memory to long-term memory. And one of the things that helps is every time we... Read it through multiple times. But even just, you know, reading a verse through over and over again can become pretty routine and you can just, you know, your mind can wander. So every time I read it through, I focus on a different part of the text. So I would say, and Jesus said to them, follow me and I'll make you fishers of men, Mark 1.17. And I'm thinking, so what is, Jesus is talking. This is, so the question is, who is speaking? Jesus is speaking. Now, if Jesus is talking, that means that this is pretty important. You know, this is not the spies in Canaan coming out with their false report. This is Jesus, and therefore this is important, and I've got to listen to what he's got to say. So Jesus said to them, follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. So next time round, I might say, and Jesus said to them, follow me, and I'll make you fishers of men, Mark 1.17. Well, who's the them? Oh, so in order to find out this, the answer to this question, I need to look at the context. I need to look at the background. And so to, in this case, it's easy because I've just got to go back and look in verses 16 and 15 and everything, and I discover that Jesus is walking along the beach and he sees a couple of fishermen casting their nets into the water. One of them's named Simon and the other is his brother Andrew. And Jesus says to them, 
follow me and I will make you fishers of men. Because they're fishing for fish, see, and he's going to say it. Very clever uh, play on words. I'll make you fishers of men. So Jesus is talking to Simon and Andrew. So that's, that's pretty good. All right, so he's talking to that. What does he say to them? Jesus said to them, follow me and I will make you fishers of men. Mark 1 verse 17. Jesus said to Simon and Andrew, follow me and I'll make you fishers of men. Now, one of the things, what does that mean to follow Jesus? Well, it's pretty easy for Simon and Andrew. They just drop their nets on the beach and start wandering after Jesus. Go back. I haven't got to this bit yet. Thanks. So, does this apply? So, the question I need to ask is, does this apply to me or does it just apply to Simon and Andrew? Is this relevant to me or am I just reading a historical narrative? This is something that happened 2,000 years ago. Very interesting but has no relevance to me. So one of the things you can do, remember I talked about the tools, thing called a concordance. Next slide. This is a photograph. I'm sorry, it's not brilliant. But every highlighted spot is where Jesus says in the Gospels, follow me. He says, follow me, something like about 20 different times. Not just to Simon and Andrew. To a whole bunch of people, including at the very end of John. Next slide, please. Oh, not the very end. John chapter 12, verse 26. He says to all of his disciples, whoever serves me must follow me. So I'm sitting there thinking, well, Jesus says to Simon and Andrew, follow me. But he says it to lots of people. He says it to a rich young ruler. He says it to a tax collector. He says it to all those who want to serve him have to follow him. So I reckon, well, this is what I reckon. What do you reckon? Do you reckon it applies to us today? Yeah, I reckon it applies to us today. So I reckon Jesus is saying, follow me. Next slide. So when, as you're going through, you focus on different parts Different parts of it become important. Jesus said to them, follow me and I will make you fishers of men. So who is doing the action here? Jesus is. He is the one who's going to do stuff. So Jesus said to them, follow me and I will make you fishers of men. Jesus says he's going to do it. It's his will. And if he says it'll happen, it will happen. Jesus said to them, follow me and I will make you you fishers of men, Mark 1, verse 17. Jesus is going to make it happen. And Jesus said to them, follow me. Actually, let's do this together as a group. So let's read this all together. And when we get to fishers of men, just really emphasize that. Okay? One, two, three. And Jesus said to them, follow me and I will make you fishers of men. Mark 1, 17. What does fishers of men mean? What does that mean? Like, I've got to go out and throw some yabbies on the street and try and catch somebody? You know? What does fishers of men mean? Anybody want to have a crack at that? Come on. 
Winners of Souls. Thank you, Jewel. Let's run with Winners of Souls. That sounds pretty cool. All right. But one more question now before we go on. If we go back a slide, please. Back another one. Uh, okay. Well, we'll leave it there. Um, one more question. How does this passage, Mark 1 verse 17, fit in with the whole Bible? How do, you know, like, it's all well and good to look at a verse and come out with a really great idea, but if it doesn't fit in with the rest of the Bible, it's only our great idea. It's not something the Holy Spirit has revealed to us. Matthew 28 verse 19, which is the Great Commission, endorses the idea of disciples going out and sharing their faith. The whole book of Acts is about the apostles going out and sharing their faith and others, not just the apostles, sharing their faith. So I think the idea that Jesus is calling his disciples to follow him and to learn and, and to become uh, people who share their faith, I think that fits in with the rest of the Bible. So I don't think it's a wrong message. So that's pretty good. So that's the observation phase. We've observed it, we've looked at it, we've studied it. Now comes the interpretation phase. Jesus, and what, what I would do is I would rewrite the passage in my own words based on my understanding now. So I would say something like, Jesus wants us to accept his invitation to be Christians. If we agree to become his disciples, he will work with us to turn us into people who can share our faith with others. Now, that's much more expanded than just Jesus, follow me and I will make you fishers of men. But it's, I've, I've expanded it so I can understand it more better, what the core message is. And it's not, a, when Jesus is going to make Simon and Andrew fishers of men, it's not an instantaneous thing. They were with Jesus for three years and they still didn't become fishers of men until after the Holy Spirit came, after Jesus had risen from the dead. So when Jesus makes people into anything, it's not necessarily an instantaneous process, but something that'll take time. So here we have the interpretation. Remember what the third phase was? Application. So Mark 1 verse 17, application. How do we take this passage and apply it? It's not, a, not something that we have to do. It's something that Jesus is going to do to us. So the simplest thing would be turn this into a prayer. Lord Jesus, I trust you. I accept your invitation to follow you. Please work in my life to bring about your will for me. Because what was the invitation? The invitation wasn't to become fishers of men. The invitation was to follow him. Right? We don't have to do anything to become fishers of men. We have to surrender our lives to Jesus and he will make us fishers of men or whatever else he wants to make of us. Jesus said to them, follow me and I will make you fishers of men. Mark 1 verse 17. Next slide, please. Ah, before we go into this, we've just spent five or ten minutes looking at a particular verse in the Bible. Who remembers where it came from? Mark 1.17. How awesome is that? You've just memorised a Bible verse. Just sitting here in church, listening to me waffle on. Now, if you had actually been doing it yourself, that verse would be locked away in your brain for the rest of your life. 
because you've moved it from the short-term memory that happens when you read a whole chapter of the Bible into your long-term memory where it will be forever. If I pushed you to it, I'm sure that you could all say, and Jesus said to them, I will make you fishers of men. Mark 1 verse 17. Because as you've gone through and looked at who's talking Jesus, and Jesus said to them, I will make you fishers of men. Mark 1 17. Just in the act of studying it, you've memorized it because you've broken it down into the different key parts. You've studied and focused on each of those parts and you've locked it away in your brain. This is, this is a process. This is something that would be good for Christians all over the world to do. It's up to, the challenge for us is whether we're going to do it or not. All right, so... Now, what we see up on, this, on the, uh, the screen there, the Bible, it's made up of 66 books, 39 in the old, 27 in the new, written by over 40 authors over 1,400, 1,500 years. And yet, despite all of this diversity, and the Bible is full of whole different types of text. There's narrative, there's history, there's poetry, there's laws, there's commandments, there's all sorts of stuff in there. And yet from Genesis to Revelation, it is one unified story. It's the story of God and his interaction with his people. Right in the beginning from creation, all the way through to the, the high point when Jesus comes, down to the end in Revelation and the apocalyptic visions there. God created the world, it was good. Then through the actions of human beings, the world became broken. And from then on, the Bible is all, of, the Old Testament points towards Jesus Christ and his coming because Christ's coming is going to fix that brokenness. And then the Gospels talk about what Jesus did while he was here and then the rest of the New Testament talks about human beings' response to Jesus Christ. That's the one story that's in the Bible. And so one of the things that helps is to ask ourselves when we look at a passage, how does that fit in with the one story? How does Mark 1, 17 fit in with the one story of Jesus, of God, creating the fall, the brokenness, the, the uh, resurrection and revel revelation? How does Mark 1, 17 fit in with that? I would suggest to you that the more people who respond to Jesus' invitation and who follow him, the more the brokenness in this world is going to be healed. You only have to look at our society today. Biblical illiteracy is rampant. Most of the Australian society, most of Western society has no idea what's in the Bible. And as a result, our society is spiralling down into brokenness. Unethical, immoral, dangerous society. The more people who follow Jesus, the more people who understand the Bible, the more healing there is in our society. So Mark 1.17 fits in beautifully with the overall story of God in the Bible. So that's the sort of things that we would do in terms of studying the text, learning the text and applying the text to our lives. Obviously some verses are going to be more relevant than others. You know, you can read plenty of stuff in the Bible that you think, oh, I've got no idea what that means. It's What's, more, what's important is the stuff that you do know what it means 
that you actually live that and apply that. So, one of the things I said at the beginning was the work of the Holy Spirit. You really only need the Bible and the Holy Spirit. What I'm going to do now is share with you an event that happened while I was preparing this sermon. So, and, and I give this to the Holy Spirit, the credit to the Holy Spirit as, as what's going on. So, I read through the Bible every year, uh, and I don't say this to boast, it's just, you know, it's no big deal, it's about 15 minutes a morning. I have read Ezekiel chapter 34 more times than I can count. When I was preparing this sermon, I, as through the Bible plan that I was following, came to Ezekiel 34, and the Holy Spirit revealed something to me in that that I had never seen in all the dozens and dozens of times I'd read Ezekiel 34 before. So what I will do now is I'll just share with you what the Holy Spirit um, shared, uh, shared with me. So Ezekiel 34, Ezekiel 34, the prophet is, is reporting, this is what God is saying to the leaders of Israel, that they have been false shepherds. And it's the kings, the prophets and the priests. They have failed to look after the people. The people are starving. Things are going bad. <coughs> Pardon me. As a minister, I have always taken this as a warning that as a shepherd, I need to care for my people. Every time I've read Ezekiel 34, yeah, that's warning me as a minister to care for my people, right? So dozens and dozens of times, and that's not a wrong message. That's the main message that's in there. But then I was reading this. For this is what the sovereign Lord says. This is what God says. This is the prophet reporting what God says. I myself will search for my sheep and look after them. As a shepherd looks after his scattered flock when he is with them, so will I look after my sheep. I will rescue them from all the places where they were scattered in a day of clouds and darkness. I will bring them out from the nations and gather them from their own countries and I will bring them into their own land. I will search for the lost and bring back the strays. I will bind up the injured and strengthen the weak. I will shepherd the flock with justice. And the thing that grabbed my attention was verse 16. I will search for the lost and bring back the strays. Can you think of a New Testament passage that is linked to that statement? Anyone? Is there a story that Jesus told? about the 99 and the 1? And Jesus said, I am the good shepherd. And suddenly as I'm reading this, I realise that this passage in Ezekiel, Jesus is using this. Ezekiel is, is this is a prophecy of Jesus. This is saying, this is what God does. God is the good shepherd who brings back the strays. And then Jesus stands up and says, I'm the good shepherd who brings back the strays. Jesus is actually making a claim for divinity in calling himself the good shepherd here because it's God who is shepherding the flock here because the human beings have failed and done it really badly but God will do it properly and then the New Testament comes along and Jesus says I'm the good shepherd I go out and I look after the, the strays and I bring them in so remember I talked about the cross references in uh, your Bible this is John chapter 10, verse 11, where it says, where Jesus says, I am the good shepherd. Now, 
in the middle, you can see there, the 10 and 11 are, circ are circled. The way this works is that they don't say John 10, 11, they just put down the chapter and the verse number. We can zoom in on this. Next slide, there we go. So next, click the button please. So there you see, there's 10, 11. And what follows after 10, 11 are the uh, cross-references. And you can see I've highlighted Psalm 23, verse 1, which says, you know, the Lord is my shepherd. Well, fair enough. But look down, Ezekiel 34, 11 to 16 is there. Now, that's from this Bible that I was given 30 years ago, that I have read till it's falling apart, that I have highlighted even there in the bit, and I never ever looked at Ezekiel 34, 11 to 16 as being part of this Jesus calling himself the good shepherd God in Ezekiel says, I am the shepherd who looks after the sheep. Jesus said, I'm the good shepherd. Jesus is making not only a claim to be a good pastor, he's making the claim for divinity because only God is the good shepherd. And I was there, Ezekiel 34, 11 to 16, for 30 years I've had this Bible and only just looked at it last month. Why last month? Because I am working on this sermon and, Jesus, and God has said, it's about time I showed James that so he can bring it up in the sermon. The Holy Spirit will reveal things to you. If you are spending time in the Word and time in prayer, the Holy Spirit will show you things when you need to know them. And it also means that two people can read the same passage and come up with a different message. Otherwise, after Steve's worked through the Bible once, he'd have nothing more to say. You know? But every time you come to a passage, you bring different questions, you get different answers... And provided your answer fits in with the other references in the Bible, fits in with the one story of God, then it's a new message. So the, the, the Bible, just because somebody else gets a different message doesn't mean one was wrong and one is right. It could just mean that the Holy Spirit is delivering a different message to different people because their needs at that time are different or their questions at that time are different. So friends, I've come to the end of today's talk. Uh, it's, it's going to be continued next week. And I've, I, you know, the Bible is just such an amazing book. It is, it is so deep that the deepest thinkers can never touch the bottom. But a toddler can splash around in it without any danger. It has something in it for everyone. And it, and it doesn't matter if you think, oh, I've read it once, I don't need to read it again. Yes, you do. Because every time you read it, you get a different message. You know, if I had said, oh, I've read Ezekiel 34 years ago, I don't need to ever read it again, I'd have missed out on that second message. We can't not read it. We can't make excuses not to read it. It is God's words to us. It is him talking to us. It's, the Bible is not a book about God. The Bible is not a book written about God. It is God writing to us. God speaking through the authors, telling us his message to us. Friends, don't not read your Bible. All right, next week I'm going to look at two passages, one of them incredibly familiar, John 3.16. I'm going to look at that and... I'm also going to look at Matthew chapter 7, verse 1, which is one of the most misinterpreted verses in the Bible. Now, if you want to get ahead of the game, I have a handout 
for Matthew 7, verse 1. I have got um, divided into observation, interpretation, application, and some online tools, the links down the bottom there. So if you want to get ahead of the game, come and see me and I'll hand you, give you a handout. All right, let's pray. Father God, thank you for your word. Thank you that you have written to us and given us never-ending messages. Thank you for your Holy Spirit who speaks to our spirits. Lord, I pray that all of us will seek to follow you truly and that you will make of us what you will. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.